Our sermon passage for today comes from Acts 17, verses 16 through 34. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has a fixed because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we, uh, as we reflect on this passage, as we reflect on this encounter that Paul has in Athens, Lord, I pray that you, you would help us understand what it is that you desire to communicate to us. Lord, you would help us to understand what we need to take from this story. You would help us to understand the significance of, of communicating rightly the gospel to all nations, all tribes, every tongue, every people. And Lord, more importantly, Lord, I pray that we would reflect on the end goal of mission as worship, and, and we would just simply ask the question, Lord, how do we worship you rightly, and how do we make you known throughout the world so that others can worship you rightly as well? Lord, we love you, and we praise you, be with us today. Amen. So we're picking up in Acts 17 
and a story of Paul where Paul is in Athens. Um, I picked this passage specifically uh, for this, this month or to, to close out our missions month sermons, and there's a reason for that that I'll get to in a moment. But just to give you a little bit of an insight of what Paul is dealing with, what he's in, engaging in when he gets into Athens, uh, first we have to understand a little bit about how Paul got to Athens. So we read the passages before we realize uh, we don't really think that Paul had a plan to go to Athens. Uh, It wasn't part of of his schedule. It wasn't really part of his itinerary. Uh, He had been working. He was in Thessalonica, and he was preaching fervently the word in Thessalonica, and they didn't really love it. Um, So they put together a nice persecution committee and went after him, right? So the the people there realized, hey, we got to get Paul out of here. It's not safe. They were unresponsive. They were hostile towards the gospel. So he takes off, and he ends up in Berea, and Berea was night and day. He he gets in Berea, and the people there are incredibly responsive, and he begins to teach with Timothy and Silas, and they begin to disciple and and to pour themselves out. Um, But the guys from Thessalonica, they didn't really love the idea of Paul being anywhere. So they sent people down into Berea, and the the persecution follows him down into Berea. And the Bereans realize, man, this is unsafe. We've got to protect Paul. So they they grab him, and they sneak him away in the night. I don't actually know if it happened in the night. I just assume that if you sneak away, you sneak away in the night. So they snuck him away, and they they take him to this ship, and they put him on a ship, and we're like, we got to get you to safety. And and what we see in the passage is that Paul is placed on the ship and he's taken as far as Athens and he's told, hey, this is as far as we can take you. So he says, all right, I'm going to wait here in Athens. Please go back and tell Timothy and Silas to come meet me here and I'll wait here until they arrive. So this is a really interesting thing because there's two things that I think are, are important for us to see in this text. One, Paul has now arrived in a place that wasn't originally a part of his plan. When Zane opened up this morning, he talks about the believers being similar to the wind in that the Spirit directs us and guides us to places that we maybe never intended to be in in the first place. We see that here with Paul, and it's not the first time that we've seen this. Paul was fervently following the Lord. He had a job that he was trying to accomplish, and in so doing, he had put together a strategy, but there's multiple times in that ministry where the Lord just takes a strategy and says, hey, I'm going to redirect you for a little while. And in Athens, what we see is a moment in which he's been redirected. The second thing that we see from this is that Paul is in an area that is utterly foreign to him. See, Paul is a Jew, and he was educated He was educated in universities in Israel. He was educated to the top of his class. He would have been very familiar with with philosophies and things like that. But the the fact of the matter is, is that the culture of Athens was very different than Jewish culture. But not only that, but Paul was also Roman. He was a Roman citizen, and he would have been familiar with Roman culture. He would have been familiar with, with the Roman Empire and the way that things functioned. And at this time, Athens did exist within the Roman Empire, but Athens had maintained such a strong identity tied to their Greek background that when Paul walked into Athens, even though technically he was still in the Roman Empire, he was not in Kansas anymore. This was not home for Paul. So here he is in a place he didn't plan to go among a people that he doesn't even fully understand. But here's one thing that we do know is that even though Paul maybe didn't plan to be there, he was well aware of the fact that if he was there, the Lord had a purpose for him there. 
We open this, uh, this sermon with, with this passage from Revelation where we see into eternity and we see the throne and around the throne is a nation of priests from every tribe, every tongue, every people in a nation that are there pouring out worship before the Lord. See, Paul would have been very aware that the end goal of missions was that every people in the world, every culture in the world be represented around the throne so that worship could be brought to the Father. This is so important. The end goal of missions is not reaching the nations. The end goal of missions is worship of God and educating people so that they can know him rightly and place their worship in front of him in the right way. It's such an important thing for us to understand. So Paul lands and he looks around and he says, all right, don't know why I'm here. Don't know what I'm doing, but let's get to work. And I like it. And we're going to learn a couple of things that I think are helpful for us in the event that we ever find ourselves in a situation where maybe the Spirit does with us what he did with Paul. Maybe, just maybe, the Spirit might take your plans and flip them upside down. Maybe, just maybe, the Spirit might take your life and say, hey, I know that you were heading this way, but I've got this other thing for you. I'm going to redirect you. Maybe, just maybe, with no planning of your own, the Lord might just reposition you and repurpose you for his kingdom. And I'm even going to go as far as saying I'm not a name it or claim it type of preacher, but we are praying that we follow the Spirit. Maybe, just maybe, the Spirit will call some of you to willingly leave where you are now in order to advance the kingdom around the globe. So the question is, is if we're ever put in that position, what do we do? Guys, <laughs> I remember being in high school one time, we took a trip to D.C. I'm from north central Florida, very small town in north central Florida. At this point in time, when I went to D.C., that was the first time I'd ever been out of my state. And I get to D.C., and that's as foreign a land as I've ever been in. <laughs> I don't understand what's going on, but I'm just kind of walking around doing my own thing. At least I understand the language. I've read some of these things before. I've seen pictures of the monuments. And I remember like a good student, I listened to my chaperones very well. And me and a couple of my buddies, we walk off. (laughs) Teenagers, you don't understand this, but this is before the age of the cell phone. We walked off. Before we knew it, we ended up a few blocks away from where we were supposed to be. And we walked into Chinatown. Gentlemen, I was lost. (laughs) I was lost. And I realized I'm only three blocks from where I'm supposed to be, but I do not know up from down, left from right. I don't understand what's going on around me. There are ducks hanging in the window of places. There are signs written in things that I've never seen. Guys, I could not have even found my way back three blocks, more or less started ministry. Guys, the world's changing. And this passage is relevant to us, and there's three main things, and we're going to get right into it. Here's why it's relevant to us. Number one, the world around us is changing. What you know today, you cannot be assured that you're going to know it so confidently in 10 to 15 years. Specifically, those of us that are holding firm to the teaching of the word, that are holding firm to the practices of of the church. Guys, there's a very real possibility that as we hold firm to our faith, the world around us is going to change. And you may never leave Hendersonville, but you may wake up in 10 to 15 years and realize, hey, this is not the place I remember. 
and I don't fully understand what's going on. Not only that, but guys, the world's becoming more global. When we used to talk about nations, we used to talk about having to sell everything you own and get on ships and travel across the ocean. Guys, every people, tribe, and tongue lives within the Middle Tennessee area. The gospel is just going like the wind blows all over the place. As there's missionaries from Korea, from South America that are coming to preach the gospel in the United States while we're putting together missionaries in the United States to try to take the gospel all over the world, the the Lord is working and he's doing so in such an amazing way. And, And the more global that this world becomes, the more we realize that we may have the opportunity to reach the nations simply by going into Madison, by going into South Nashville, by going into West Nashville, simply by engaging with the people that we work with, the communities that we live in. But we have to be able to be willing to look and realize, hey, the cultures may be different, but there are ways for us to be able to cross those boundaries. We may live in a world with thousands and thousands of distinct cultures, but all of those cultures were created by one God, and they share one image of God. And even though we may be able to, I mean, the, the, the amount of differences between us may be absolutely infinite, the commonality, the commonality allows us to realize that the one true gospel is applicable to every single person. And then finally, we realize that the Lord may absolutely uproot you and do exactly what Paul did, is just move you to a location. So if we end up there, how do we respond? What do we do? Where do we start? And I think there's a couple of lessons that we get from Paul's engagement with Athens that will help us understand how do we begin to communicate to the gospel to a place that may seem so foreign to us, so different from us. All right, so the very first thing, let's go ahead and read verse 16. It says, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. The very first thing that I want to say is if we want to figure out where do we start in regards to engaging the nations, we want to start with checking our motives. What are our motives? What's driving us to do such a thing? Because here's the thing, what motivates us to engage the nations is going to change the way that we interact with people, and it's also going to change the way that we communicate the message. So what motivated Paul? Well, here's what we know. When Paul walked into Athens, he was provoked in the spirit, all right? That concept of being provoked in the spirit, that's a really, really sweet way of saying Paul was hot. He was angry. I mean, Paul was incensed was simmering at this thought of idolatry taking place at such a large scale. See, Athens was a city of idolatry. A Greek writer from the time even makes the comment that if you go into Athens, it is easier to find a God to worship than it is to find a man to speak to. He's incensed by it. But, but why is he incensed? He's angry because the name of the Lord is being profaned. The name of the Lord, the name of the Lord is being slandered. Worship that is due God and God alone is is being given to idols. See, Paul is angry 
And his anger is rooted based in the fact that he knows God deeply and he understands the glory of God and the majesty of God and he understands what is due God and he's seeing an entire civilization that is taking what belongs to God and God alone and offering it to idols that were created in the image of man instead. Paul's mad. Why is he mad? Because he's motivated He's motivated by seeing glory being given to God. The end result of Paul's desire is seeing God worshiped. Now, we know in Scripture that anger is not necessarily a sin, but we also know that Paul teaches that it's okay to be angry as long as your anger doesn't result in sin. So we have to ask the question, Paul is so angry at seeing this idolatry, is this a sinful anger? And and I suggest that it is not a sinful anger. And this is the reason why this type of anger didn't result in a hot-tempered response from Paul. Paul didn't walk into the streets and start screaming at the people as if he were some sort of street evangelist down on Broadway. Paul went into the city and said, hey, you are placing worship in the wrong place. Let me reason with you so that you can understand the God that you should be worshiping. This is important. Paul hated idolatry and he hated false philosophy, but he did not allow that hatred of idolatry and false philosophy to be translated into a hatred of the idolater and the philosopher. So later when he's reasoning with the people, he says, starting in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, the one that he's proclaiming, being Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by man, nor is he even uh, served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on earth in the face of the earth. And he determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. And this is so important, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. So not only was he angered at the idea of worship being given to something that was not worthy of worship, he is burdened by a people that are drowning in idolatry. See, the word even at the beginning when he says that he saw the city and saw that it was full of idols, that word full, John Stott says that it's better translated that it's submerged in idolatry. There's so much, it's not like he's going into the city and there are a few temples that people are going into worship in. I mean, he's sitting in the marketplace and they didn't just build a temple. As he looks up, you would see the Acropolis. This is a city of temples that is built on the mountain. These people are drowning in idolatry. They are so devout in their worship, but the thing that they're worshiping is killing them. It's destroying them. And Paul comes to him and motivated by proper worship and proper placement of worship, he comes to them and he simply says, hey guys, you want to worship so much, can I teach you about the one that's actually worthy of your worship? And he knows he has a good starting place simply because of the fact that he knows that God has written eternity into the hearts of every man that comes out of Ecclesiastes. He knows that he has a starting place because no matter how different that they are, simply through the observation of creation, they can know certain things about the divine attributes of God and his characteristics. But because of their sinfulness, their knowledge of eternity can never translate into a salvific knowledge. They cannot know him as a personal God. So they're 
you're left with a desire to worship, but nowhere to place that worship other than into false philosophies and to temples that they have created with their own hands, and it's killing them. So Paul looks at a broken world and he says, guys, let me teach you where worship belongs. And let me teach you how to know the one that created you to know him and find him. Those were his motives. So important that our motives are right because when our motives get sidetracked, when we run into the difficulty of communicating a complex message to a culture so different from ours, it can be very tempted to do one of two things. Either one, run into the hardships and say, you know what, I'm just going to quit trying. And I've seen this. I've seen people that have lived their entire lives in foreign countries and have gotten to the point where they're like, I don't know how to get the gospel through to them. So they just stop. They just do good works. Another thing that they do is there's the temptation to create synchristic faith. It's so hard to communicate truth to you, so what I'm going to do instead is I just want you guys to accept what I believe, so I'm going to take a little bit what I believe and a little bit what you believe, and I'm going to try to form this new idea, and I'm just going to blend it together so that we can all be happy, (laughs) so that we can all be comfortable in the things that we believe. The problem is is that, that that type of belief doesn't result in actual worship. So he's motivated purely by the desire that God be worshiped rightly. So he goes and he begins to reason with the people so that he can teach them about God so that they can worship rightly. Motives can get cut off very, very easily. I was sitting in my house in the Middle East one time. This guy that I'd been trying to minister to for a while came over and he was giving me a hard time. Why was he giving me a hard time? Because I had eaten shrimp and bacon. (laughs) They don't eat shrimp and bacon. He knows that the Christian faith comes out of Judaism. Jews don't eat shrimp and bacon. So he's giving me this hard time. And I'm sitting here thinking, I was like, man, I've got to get this guy off my back. So I sit down with the scriptures and I lay out all the teachings of what cleanliness is and, and in the way that the Lord has made unclean, clean, uh, unclean things clean. And I just poured it out before him. And, and he, you know, he heard it and didn't, you know, wasn't sold. And he left. And I realized, like, man, I just spent about an hour <laughs> teaching all of these details of scripture and my entire motive was not that he may know the Lord. My entire motive was that he would leave me alone so I could eat my bacon in peace. Like, (laughs) I mean, thankfully this guy was a friend of mine so I had other opportunities. This wasn't like a breakdown. But motives can get sidetracked fast. Guys, worship is the goal. The glory to the Lord is the goal and that needs to be what motivates us. The next thing that we see Paul doing is that we see Paul holding firm to the gospel. A lot of accusations when you read this passage, there's a lot of scholars that accuse Paul of actually going off book on this. They actually will will say that this was a failed ministry by Paul. Uh, What they'll say about it is, is they'll say, well, what Paul does is rather than staying to the actual scriptures, he begins to use philosophies of the day and culture of the day to try to communicate to the people, and as a result, they didn't respond. And a lot of times they'll, they'll attribute this as a failed attempt by Paul to do ministry simply because the church wasn't planted. When he leaves, only a couple of people follow with him. I disagree with this entirely. And the reason why I disagree with this is, one, the beginning and the end of Paul's message is rooted firmly in the teaching of Jesus Christ and him crucified and resurrected. Right from the beginning when he goes into the marketplace and he begins to reason, what we find is is that he is preaching, they're just not understanding. 
And they're like, what is this babbler talking about? And they were like, I don't know. He's got some message about a guy named Jesus and a resurrection. He's teaching new deities. These are new things. See, here's the thing that I understand. Just because they didn't understand doesn't mean that he didn't preach rightly. So he goes and they bring him for the Areopagus. Some of you, if you're reading King James or another translation, you might actually see on Mars Hill, right? They bring him there and he's there either before the people or before a council. And they're like, explain these new things that you're teaching. So he goes on and he explains about the God that created the universe, the God that created each and every one of us, the God that sustains all of humanity. And then he comes back and he says, hey guys, you have been worshiping the wrong God. And there's been a period of time where he's allowed that to go on. He's allowed us to live in ignorance, but there is a judgment day coming. And there's a day when we have to repent because the one who lived and died will come back to judge again. And he goes back again to the resurrection and he preaches the power of the resurrection to bring new life to people. And this is so important because we realize when Paul goes into this work, even though the culture was so different, Paul knew that he had to hold firm to the foundations of the gospel. That at this point in time, he first went, and I love this, so when he first comes into Athens, he goes to the synagogue and to devout Greeks. Devout Greeks would have been Greeks that had been hearing the teaching of the Old Testament and were probably coming to the synagogues in order to learn the Old Testament. So when he first came to Athens, he went there, and this is interesting, they have a context for Messiah. So when he preaches Jesus as a Messiah, they understand the Old Testament. They understand all of the things that would have led to the idea of Messiah. When they talk about Jesus as the, the, the lamb that was sacrificed for the forgiveness of sins, they have a context for sacrificial systems. They have a context for Jesus potentially being that lamb. So he's speaking to a community that when he preaches about the resurrection, they have a context for that. But when he walks into Athens that historical context is gone. The people that he's interacting with don't have that same background, so he's left with the challenge of how do I communicate the only means of salvation, and that is salvation by grace through faith in trusting the work of Christ on the cross and the power of his resurrection. How do I communicate this only means of salvation to a people that have no grounds for understanding it? Well, the very first thing that Paul would have acknowledged is, well, the very first thing that I have to do is I have to hold firm to the gospel. I cannot change the message. I cannot change the message because that's the temptation. The temptation is to whenever you get to a people that are not responding well to the message that you have, that are not responding well to the gospel, they're not understanding it, the, 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 the options that you have is to either do the hard work of really trying to help them understand how this applies to their life or to change the gospel so that it's easier for them to receive. And this is a real temptation, guys. This is a real temptation, and it comes the strongest when you actually love the people that you're working among. Do you have any idea how hard it is to deeply love a person that rejects Jesus Christ? It's so hard to deeply love a people that will not receive faith and salvation. And that love for them can so easily lead to the temptation of simply saying, how, how could I love a people that are destined for judgment? Maybe the message is wrong. I'll change it. And we can't be tempted in that direction. 
we have to remind ourselves that proper worship comes from a proper understanding of the gospel that brings us into right relationship with the Lord so that we can worship. We must hold firm to our gospel. Well, that brings us to our next point. Is this, if our motives are right and we've held firm to the gospel, but we're still trying to reach a people, then we have to realize, well, then the responsibility comes from us to then do the legwork that is necessary to help people understand the message that we're trying to communicate. Now, let's go ahead and, and remind ourselves right off the bat that any conversion at all is a miracle. It requires a work of the Holy Spirit to provide transformations in the heart of an individual. We cannot force a person to respond. We cannot convince a person to respond. We can only speak a message that gives them the opportunity to hear and thus have faith. We need a spiritual thing to take place, but we do have a responsibility to communicate as clearly as possible. And what Paul shows us in this passage is that when he goes into Athens, he goes in with a deep desire to know the people and to ask the questions that are necessary so that he can figure out the context of the culture so that he can speak the gospel into that context. This requires a lot of work. For some people, this requires learning an entirely different language. It requires studying the history, the poetry, the music, Studying the forms of worship that people take in, it requires a deep dive in, into the lives of people to figure out what is it that they're asking, what is it that they're seeking, and how do I find a way to speak this gospel that I hold so dear into their lives? Because guys, it's easy to get the message right, but then deliver that message to the wrong people. <laughs> Let me give you an example of this. I was in South America and I was a part of a team of missionaries that was made up of a very diverse group. So we, we were a team that had American missionaries that were down working in Peru. But in addition to this, we had uh, Latin missionaries that were from the cities along the coast. And we had indigenous missionaries that had come from uh, the Quechua people in the mountains and uh, various jungle tribes where people had converted. And we all came together and we worked as a team. This was very difficult because there's a lot of cultures to bring into one team to try to work together. But we're all working as this team. We loved each other. And we had taken this retreat so that we could sit and relax for a while and sit under some good worship and teaching. We had this wonderful church from Kentucky that came down that decided to lead us, right? So this church comes down and they're leading us in worship. And the pastor of the church is coming down and he's going to be leading the, the preaching so that we can sit down and we can hear the word of God. And, and for a while, we don't have to be the ones working, but we can be the ones being blessed and receiving. So this pastor, unfortunately, was supposed to be there a day early, and his flight was delayed, so he got there hours before he was supposed to teach. So he gets there, he sleeps for about two to three hours, and he wakes up just in time to walk into the room where we were all meeting, and he begins to preach. And the message started off, I mean, it was on point. He goes on and so much about the Christian life, about really focusing on where our heart is devoted to, where our heart lies. And then he begins to warn us, guys, don't let your heart wander. And he begins to preach against the temptation of, of wealth and worldly possessions. And he's saying, guys, it's so easy to be tempted by these things and to allow your heart to shift in focus towards these things and things alone, but don't be distracted from the Lord. And I'm like, this is it. This is on point, man. This is good. 
Well, then he goes on, he says, hey, and, and if the Lord blesses you with wealth, it's a gift from the Lord to be used for his kingdom. It's not bad to be wealthy, but we have to be careful not to love wealth the way that we should be loving God. And then I'm like, hey, this is it, man. This is on point. I love this. And he's like, yeah, and you have to be careful about misuse of the wealth that the Lord gives you. Be careful about falling into the temptation of gambling or playing games of chance. And I'm like, hold on now. I don't, I'm not 100% sure where we're going with this. Like, that's a very specific thing, and I'm not sure it applies, but okay. So he's saying, you know, use your money wisely. Don't, don't go out and just throw it away and all of these things. And then all of a sudden, he finishes his sermon with about a 15-minute warning against the Kentucky Derby and gambling at the Kentucky Derby. And I'm like, man, this is weird. Half of my team lives in the jungle. They've never even seen a horse. Like, they've got no clue that people race horses for money. And we just get this entire sermon warning us about falling into the temptation of gambling and losing all of the blessing that the Lord has given us by betting it on horses. Guys, the message was not wrong. It wasn't for the right people. It was misapplied. And guys, that's the challenge is how do we take the message that is so valuable and get it to the right people? So Paul goes into Athens. It's not like he just walked into the middle of Athens and starts declaring the truths of the Lord. What we understand from the text is that Paul obviously took the time to walk around the city to get to know the culture, to take things in, because when he's preaching to the people, he begins to use things that he would have only known had he been there among the people and started asking the questions. It says that when he began to teach, right off the bat, he goes in and he says, hey, I notice that you are very religious people. Notice that that is neither a compliment nor an insult. It's just a neutral statement. In the South, that's the equivalent of listening to somebody tell you about their hobbies and finishing it with, oh, that's very interesting. <laughs> like, it's neither positive nor negative. It's just a statement that I have heard you and seen you. <laughs> okay, so he comes to the people and he says, I can tell that you are very religious. So much so that you guys have a, a tomb or a place of worship to where you worship the unknown God. Now, hold on to that for a second. He's also saying, hey, through observing the culture, this is what I I've learned. You guys love to just sit around the marketplace and talk about the things that you know and to learn all of the new things that you could possibly learn. So he realized philosophically, you people are so arrogant in your knowledge. You're so confident that you know all there is to know. You're braggadocious about your, your, your commitment to knowledge. And yet in your idolatry, you're worshiping a God that you don't know to cover all of your bases. And, and Paul says, hey, I'm going to use this and I'm just going to open a door. I'm going to crack it open. Because here's the thing. You guys are so confident in your knowledge, but in your worshiping, you're acknowledging that there are some things that you do not know. Which is it? And since you're now admitting that there are certain things that you don't know, can I introduce you to the God that you worship as unknown and I would like to make him very personal to you. Let me use their culture. Let me crack it open just a little bit and walk right into it. I love this. The Epicureans, man, if there's a culture that represents American culture, the Epicureans would have been them. They were a philosophy that was devoted to reducing suffering and increasing pleasure. The entire meaning of life for them was, is how do I remove any suffering that I possibly can, and how do I increase pleasure in every way that I possibly can? 
They didn't believe in spirituality or the things that were divine. They believed that you only have this life, and once you die, it is over. There is nothing after it. So the meaning of life was take advantage of the time that you have, enjoy everything that you possibly can, and avoid anything that could be potentially hard. And Paul says, hey, uh, that's great. That's interesting. But one time I met a guy that died, and now he's alive again. What do you do about that? <laughs> he used the culture and he cracked the door and he walked right through it. And he says, hey, there is a, it, obviously a desire for you to know things, but let me introduce you some things that maybe you don't know. And I'm going to use those as a bridge to get the gospel to you. I'm going to use one more example as he, he targets this issue of idolatry. And I love this. He's like, man, clearly you guys, he's quoting their history and their poetry. And he's like, man, clearly you guys believe that all of us are the offsprings of the gods. That was a very common Greek belief that the way humanity came into existence is that they were the offspring of the gods. And Paul's like, eh, not completely right, but we are all created in the image of God. So I've got a place where I can run with. Let's, let's start this conversation up. And he said, okay, let me introduce you to this idea. You believe that all of this world and all of these people come from the gods, don't you? Yeah, of course we would have believed that. Okay, so that must assume that the God that created all of this is greater than the thing that he created. Oh yeah, absolutely, that makes sense. Okay, well then let's think about this. You worship God at these temples. Yeah, yeah, of course. Who created the temples? We did. Hold on. So if God created you, that must mean that God is greater, greater than his creation. But if you created the temples, that must mean that you're greater than the creation of the temples. How is it that you're trying to worship God by worshiping a thing that's less than you? So he asks the questions and he just simply says, guys, can I introduce you to the idea that maybe maybe the God that created you is actually a God that you can know. And maybe your worship shouldn't be directed to the things that you created with your own hands, but maybe it should be directed to the one that created you. He's a lot closer than you think he is. So he knew the culture. He asked the questions. He held firm to the gospel and he preached. And he preached into the culture that was there So about 50 different examples I'd love to go into, but for time, I can't. This is the final thing. Paul trusted God with the results. I told you that there are a lot of scholars that would attribute this as failed ministry simply because of the fact that it didn't result in a church plant or a church movement out of Athens. But I think that's wrong. I think it's absolutely wrong. One, because there was a response. And I like the, the response that he gets because I think it encourages us to think about the way we would share gospel with those around us. He preached. Some people said, you're a dummy. I want nothing to do with it. Some were like, oh, that's kind of interesting. I'll hear more about it. And some were like, I'll believe this and follow you. We should be encouraged when we read this, that when we're out ministering, that if we're faithful to the message and we're finding ways to communicate that into the culture, then we can have confidence that whatever we do faithfully, that the Lord will work with it. And honestly, some people may hear it and love it. Some people may hear it and hate it. And some people may just be completely indifferent and be like, eh, yeah, I like you, so I'll listen to it some more. And that's all right. 
Because the measure of our success in the work of God is not based on the results that we get. The measure of our success in the ministry of God is based entirely, entirely to our faithfulness to the Lord and our commitment to preaching the gospel as it was given to us. Guys, the world's changing. And if we are going to take the Spirit seriously, then we need to be open to the idea that the Spirit might be willing to make serious changes in our lives for the advancement of His kingdom. And this is what I want you to understand, is from this text we get an example. That if we find ourselves in a place we never intended to go, among a people that we don't even fully understand, that if we'll sit back and just check our motives, that if we'll hold firm to the gospel as it's been given to us, if we'll do the legwork to get to know the people and ask the questions, that we'll have the opportunities to speak the truth to them, and then we can trust the Lord with the rest. Guys, this is our desire as a church, to see the kingdom go, and for us to be an obedient in any way that we possibly can to move with it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you so much. We are so grateful for you. Lord, whenever I sit down and think about my own life, I realize that there were so many cultural hurdles that had to be crossed so that I could hear and understand the gospel. And I'm grateful that your spirit moved people to put them in positions at the right time in the right places to be able to speak that to me. And Lord, I realize that you promise us that your will will be accomplished on this earth, that every people will be represented among the throne, Lord. And I just pray that we would listen to your spirit and realize that the way that that will be accomplished was, will be through your church, empowered by your spirit, sharing the testimony of your son. So Lord, I just pray that we would be motivated to do just that, to be attuned with your spirit, and to engage wherever you give us the opportunity. Lord, we love you and praise you. Amen.